Hey, it's Anna Sale, and I want to thank you for listening to Death, Sex, and Money, where I explore the big questions and hard choices that are often left out of polite conversation. You can hear new episodes ad-free every week on Amazon Music, where you can find Death, Sex, and Money and all of your Slate favorites without the ads. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. I had to go through a series of trials, Herculean trials before she would actually say that we were, you know, that I was her boyfriend. It wasn't like we were playing the field. It was just like uh, she just didn't know she could trust me. It's hard to trust somebody who's out carousing every night, you know, even though he left awesome voicemails. This is Death, Death Sex, Sex, and, and Money. My relationship with death remains the same, strongly against it. It's the show from WNYC about the things we think about a lot. Do you think the sexual revolution has gone too far? And need to talk about more. Now I want my money! I'm Anna Sale. Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires have been married for about a year. He's been sober for two. Jason's a musician. He got his start with the southern rock band Drive-By Truckers after playing in bars as a teenager while he was growing up in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Amanda's a musician, too. She writes and sings, and by the time she was 15, she was already playing with a band called the Texas Playboys. Jason and Amanda both put out solo albums last year, and Jason's album, called Southeastern, hit it really big. A lot of his songs deal with his addiction and getting sober and how their love helped him through it. Now, Jason's gotten a lot of media attention through all this. But I wanted to talk to both him and Amanda about what it's been like to go through it as a couple. Because even when there's change that's really good and exciting in a relationship, it can still take some adjusting. Jason and Amanda showed up in matching black leather jackets. She wore a low-cut brown lace shirt under hers. For Jason, it was a black button-down. His hair was slicked back very Johnny Cash. They look like they fit together. How would you describe this first year of marriage that you've had together? I think we did a great job. We got along for, for a large part of it, and uh, 
you know, we don't have the same arguments at the end of the first year that we had at the beginning of the first year. And I think that's important. I think for anything to be successful, your problems have to become different problems over time. What did you argue about when you first married that now you're sort of over? Trust. (laughs) Trust. We didn't know each other very well. And I, I was a philanderer in a past life, so it was hard for her to trust me, you know, that I was actually going to stick around and, and wasn't going to uh, make a fool of her. I was I was not an easy person to trust because I hadn't been sober very long, and, you know, I felt like I hadn't been a grown-up very long at that point. But I was determined. Would you put it the same way? I would say, yeah, trust too, because um, he pretended like he was put his trust in me more than he did, I think. You know, all this technology and stuff, it's easy to develop a new relationship if you wanted to with somebody else. But we got over that. Yeah, it was scary for me. I'm probably more than a little bit neurotic about certain personal things. And and one of them is the fact that it is really so easy. I mean, years ago, if somebody called, there was one phone in the house, you know, and there was all these songs about nobody calling and and hanging up as soon as, you know, the wife asks who it is. And uh, there aren't those songs anymore because you can get in touch with that nobody so quickly and so easily. And that did terrify me. And, you know, also it was something probably that I had uh, superimposed. What's the word for uh, your own concern that you put on somebody? Projecting. Projecting, yeah. I was probably doing that in a way, too, because I had been uh, such a dog for so long. I probably just sort of expected everybody would be that way, but, but that's not the case. Ten years ago I might have seen you dancing in a different life. And offered up my help in different ways But those were different days Projecting, Amanda broke in to say. I love that moment because it shows how they work as a couple. Jason talks a lot more than Amanda does, but when she breaks in, it's really telling. You get the sense that she's the one that's drawn a lot of the lines in their relationship. What prompted rehab? He needed help, and he told me one night after we were drinking that, you know, he wanted to quit drinking. I was like, all right. And he was, okay, he wasn't the person that could just stop drinking. You know, I remembered him trying a couple days in a row or a day in a row, trying not to drink after he woke up, you know. But there's physical signs, you know, like shaking and all the things like that. And um, a few nights later, he said the same thing, and he was very upset and was like, I can't do it by myself, and... I was like, well, all right, you don't get to just say this over and over, you know, this is what you're going to do. And so I texted a couple of his friends, and in the night while I was looking up, you know, the rehab things and numbers, and then I emailed his manager about it to help sort of facilitate going to rehab. The last night before, because I think he knew he was going to go to rehab, he was Want to do every drug and drink everything and all the moonshine and all the late night life. It was crazy. It started out like a cool night, you know, and ended up being the worst night ever, 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 ever. At that point, I was not having any more of anything to do with him because I was so mad the next morning. It's got me thinking now, what if I really could be bulletproof? Anything from hacksaws to hand grenades 
Then he was in rehab and then he was writing me letters because they don't let you talk on the phone. Said nice and sweet things like wait to see the progress and all this kind of stuff. Drew pictures and I was swayed to see the progress. But when he went to rehab, you were angry from that last night. Oh, hell yeah. During that period, was it your impression that your relationship was in jeopardy? I knew it was in jeopardy, but I never, uh, you know, I'd been after it for a long time, a long time. I never allowed failure to be an option, really. I'm competitive in, in a lot of things, too many things, really. And in that particular area, I just had set in my mind, this is going to work out. Whatever I have to do, whatever I have to say, this is going to work out. So as nervous as I was and as scared as I was that she might not be there when I got out, I still was looking for a way to make it work out and, and you know, focusing a lot of energy on that. And, and some part of me thought it would be all right, but, you know, I, I didn't know for sure. Early on, I didn't understand his drinking problem. You know, early on, it's like, I'm good at going out and having a good time partying, you know, getting drunk occasionally or whatever. But after a while, I realized that it was a real problem. And then for my life, you know, I didn't want to invest in somebody that, you know, might not be around for very that long. And I, you know, or how sad it would be to watch somebody with so much talent just throw it all away. Were you sober before you moved in together? Yeah, I got sober right right before that. Because when I went to rehab, yeah. I still had that house in Alabama, yeah, that's that right. apartment in Alabama. Mm-hmm. So right, yeah, because his house was above a bar. And yeah. Then. Um, you know, I wasn't going to move to Alabama. Yeah. And we found a place in Nashville we liked. Did you feel ready to move in together? I mean, were, was part of you worried that rehab wouldn't take? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's something you pay attention to every day for him, you know, something he has to choose to do every day, so keep making good decisions. But, yes, then I was a little worried, but also I was prepared to be there for him because he's trying, you know. She's good at taking care of people who need it but don't necessarily deserve it. <laughs> That's not true. It's it's true. It's true. I mean, I, I don't know what people deserve, but I do feel like that you, you have a good knack for strays. I you don't know. know. You you put up with more than, than you, you should have, I think, before I got sober. Well, um, but I'm glad you did. That's Clearly, I just, I just couldn't have asked that much from you. Right. It was surprising to me in hindsight that, you know, that the relationship didn't end sooner. Was the place you decided to move in together, was it like a, we're going to buy a couch together kind of move in and we're going to join our checking accounts kind of no, move in? No, uh-uh. it was just sort of like a, we found a duplex, which we live in now, and um, I put my stuff in there and he put his stuff in there and uh, 
our stuff got along pretty good. And then, like, a few months later, we bought a couch. <laughs> yeah, we did, we did buy a couch. Yeah, afterwards. A really wide couch. Yeah. Uh, when we get home, when we're not working, it's, it's uh, our favorite thing to watch movies on the couch. We couldn't both fit on the couch that we had before, so we had to get a, a bigger couch. I still believe in having our own monies. Our own cars, like our own money. Mm-hmm. So, so like even that. after marriage, your your finances are, are separate. Yeah. Yeah. We have the same accountant, but our finances are separate. She mm-hmm. has her own credit cards. I have mine, things like mm-hmm. that. My impression is that the last year, in the last year, you're probably earning a lot more money than you were before. He is. I'm not, you know. My record didn't do as well as his. <laughs> That's just the truth of it. Um, but I am glad that he's doing a lot better. You're not doing bad. I mean, you you no, know, I'm about made a good fair. amount of money. Yeah, I make um, a fair amount. I'm, but I just I'm happy a, with my. <laughs> I had a windfall, you know. <laughs> I own the record, and and it did pretty well, and didn't go through a major label, you know. Just went through a distribution company, and so yeah, I got I got lucky with that. Got real fortunate with it. I think it's changed a whole lot for us. We're looking for a house. We're looking mm-hmm. at houses after we leave here. So we're talking in a studio in Nashville, and they're in the middle of this classic country music rite of passage when the hit leads to a new house. But for Jason and Amanda, the must-haves are not very rock and roll. I would like to live in a place that doesn't have any carpet. (laughs) That's what I want. I got allergies. I don't want any carpet. I like it to have, uh, you know, door that locks. <laughs> she needs a bigger bathroom. I need a bigger bathroom. The place we're in right now, we have it. You know, we each have our own bathroom, but they're both kind of like hotel size bathrooms. You know, like Holiday Inn Express size bathrooms. And, Mine's uh, smaller than that. Probably so. Mine's yeah. the size of a closet, which is fine. You got like a Ramada bathroom, <laughs> but- <laughs> minus the handcuffs that somebody left in there. Um, yeah, you need a bigger bathroom. Yeah, you else, need a bigger bathroom. And there has to be trees because I like to watch the birds. She's a birder. So a yard? No, it doesn't have to have a yard. It has to have a tree. I need enough room to eventually throw a baseball with a child. That's all the yard I need. That's all I want. Mm-hmm. How do you talk about kids when you're touring musicians? You, we'll figure out a way. I mean, how many people in history have had children and it's turned out all right? You know. If that many idiots can have a kid and not screw it up too bad, I think we can pull it off no matter what our schedule looks like. Mm-hmm. For me, with kids, it's a it's a lot of different thoughts that go into it, you know, because generally when a woman has a child, the child is always left to the woman, you know, or to the lady or whatever. The guy can go off and go tour and whatever, go gallivanting around the world. I'm Watch kidding. from Texas. Yeah. She's from Texas. <laughs> yeah. And um, <laughs> no, but, you know, I understand there's sacrifice and everything, but I'm still a selfish person. You know, I still want my own career and I want my own freedom and time. And I want the, I feel like if I do have a child, it'll be something I'm very involved in. I know I will be. But um, I think it should be like a co parenting or a shared parenting thing. And I'm not sure what that exactly means, but. We'll have to figure it out we today, so we'll worry about it later. Yeah. We can't share the first right. part. That's yeah. the, I mean, yeah, I'll be there until the baby's or I'm gone from the earth. I'll take mm-hmm. care of it. You know, I'm not going to screw up on that responsibility. But at the same time, that motherly instinct, when it's kind of combating the, the desire to be your own individual person for a woman, I can't even weigh in on that. That's just, that's just incredibly difficult for me to even wrap my head around. 
So the timeline and logistics of kids, that's something for the future for Jason and Amanda. For now, these two traveling musicians are figuring out how to deal with a long-distance marriage. I don't think you had any reservations about saying, this is what I need from somebody. Yeah. You know, that's always been for you. And this is what I don't need. The temptations of the road and the challenges of communicating, that's all coming up. But before we get to that, I want to thank you for making our new podcast feel so welcome in the world. We launched earlier this month, and we heard from so many of you. Really nice tweets and emails, questions for future shows to explore, and stories you shared. So many stories. We got lots of notes about the episode about my love life and the help I got from former Senator Alan Simpson and his wife, Anne. A listener from Texas wrote in, who's also divorced and in her 30s. She said, when you said you were afraid of wasting time, well, yes. Honestly, just typing that out was so hard for me that I can't even read it back without flinching. Anthea wrote on Twitter, it made me wish there was a collection of congressional wife interviews about times they disagreed about policy with their partners. Yes. And a lot of you related to the particulars of my breakup with Arthur. Here's Brady Dale, whose girlfriend of four years just moved out. Not because they were fighting a lot, but because they had a different timeline for settling down. I think it's a little easier if, if there's some, like, explosion. It's like, oh, well, it all comes down to that and screw them. Like, there's, there's no screw them in this story. Um, there's no anger or vitriol at all. So it, it, I guess it is a little bit harder to, like, to wrap it up in your mind if there's nothing to be mad about. So keep these stories coming. It's made us even more excited to put out new shows. And you can write to us with story ideas anytime at deathsexmoney at WNYC.org. Let me tell you a good story. It was late on a Sunday afternoon, and my family and I had been away and rolled into the driveway, and everyone was worn out from traveling and getting hangry. But waiting for us was a solution. A hungry root box filled with healthy, grabbable snacks and a few different dinner meals to choose from. We tore into this thing like a pack of wild animals and ate all the snacks. But they were healthy, whole ingredients, fresh produce. And then we were set for dinner a few hours later, which only took about 15 minutes to prep and cook and get on the table. I was so grateful to my past self for doing my current self this solid by ordering this box. And it was easy. I took a short quiz to tell Hungry Root what kinds of meat my family eats, the sorts of flavors we like, any dietary restrictions we have, or just things we're trying to avoid, and when I wanted the box to be delivered. Right now, Hungry Root is offering Death, Sex, and Money listeners 40% off your first delivery and free veggies for life. Just go to HungryRoot.com slash DSM to get 40% off your first delivery and get your free veggies. That's HungryRoot.com slash DSM. And don't forget to use our link so they know we sent you. 
Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. I want to thank you for listening and for all your support as we at Death, Sex, and Money have made our move to Slate. Your stories, voice memos, and emails have meant so much to the team. As part of this transition, there's a new way to support our show financially at Slate, our new home. And you'll get something special in return. Subscribe to Slate Plus, and you'll not only support our work on death, sex, and money, you'll get access to new benefits, including listening to us and all of the other great shows Slate makes, like Slow Burn and Dakota Ring, without any ads or sponsor breaks. To subscribe, just click Try Free at the top of the Death, Sex, and Money show page on Apple Podcasts, or visit slate.com slash DSM plus to get access wherever you listen. Thanks. This is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC. I'm Anna Sale. I'm talking to musicians Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires about their marriage. Their wedding was in February of last year. I just wanted to have a party that all our friends could come to that said, hey, look, we're a thing, you know, we're permanent. I like the commitment part of it, you know, it being like a somehow has something attached to the word that means something bigger than what it's the same as before, but the words change. Amanda, I want to ask you about how you navigated being Jason's wife. You have an album out, as you said, that came out last summer. Mm-hmm. One thing I noticed, it's interesting that you, on Twitter, you're mm-hmm. Amanda Isbell. Mm-hmm. And on your record, you're Amanda Shires. Mm-hmm. How do you think about your wife identity and your professional identity? That's something I'm still thinking on, you know. On Twitter, I've changed my name to Amanda Isbell because I was still getting some unwanted messages and things and I thought that would help you know for people that still didn't get it and then um <laughs> he put a ring on it yeah yeah exactly <laughs> and then you know Amanda Shires is has always been my name so I don't know might be Amanda Shires Isabel but being married to somebody doesn't change your art I mean you, you know it could change the topics but it doesn't change what you what you're in the world to do have there been moments where you felt competitive Nope, I'm not competitive at all. Like, I'm not competitive. Because he doesn't have a vagina. Because, I mean, my problems and my thoughts are all all from a woman's perspective. And you can't compete with that. (laughs) Or without that. So I guess that's part of why I've not felt competitive. Because I know, I understand the different places we are in and the different, you know. He's a white dude. Yeah, you do different things. Yeah. Coming from a different angle, yeah. I wanna look at the bird, says her wings and split the sky. I wanna look at the bird, I know what it is to fly. 
as your professional lives have changed over the last year, I just imagine that there's a lot of pressure when you are together because mm-hmm. you know you're going to part again. How do you sort of balance talking about checking in and like, oh my gosh, this is happening and this felt this way and this felt mm-hmm. this way with just going <laughs> on a date? At it. I'm bad at it. I, I have modes, you know, mental modes that I get in. And uh, when I'm on the road, I focus very much on doing the work, on playing the show, on being good every night. And part of me just gets switched off, you know, the part that's very private and very personal and very uh, intimate. That especially, that part of me gets shut off. So I've been trying really hard uh, in the last few months to call that part back up when we're checking in with each other, when we're on the phone to actually, because she feels like she's talking to a robot sometimes. And I understand that, you know, I say, well, I did this, I did that, I did this. Now I got to go sound check. That's not enough for somebody who's who's missing you, you know. And it's not that I don't miss her just as much. I just have a a, a set of, of of techniques that I use to keep myself from going out and drinking again or to keep myself from getting exhausted on the road or, or whatever. And, and I need to learn how to navigate those things and still, you know, still be personal. I think that's not just a touring musician. I think a lot of boyfriends and husbands and partners have that yeah, <laughs> when, so. they're, when they're checking probably, in with their partners. It's um, a lot like a... I don't know. It's more like a list conversation rather than a conversation conversation. A lot of the world turns into checklists for me when I'm on the road. Like, okay, this person's alive, this person's fed, this person's good. Mm -hmm. You know, sound check is done. Mm -hmm. Everything becomes a checklist except for the actual show. And Amanda, tell me about the year. You said something that's happened over the last year is you've built trust. Mm -hmm. How do you build trust when, when your husband is a touring musician because you know what comes with that in a lot of cases yeah oh i do i've seen it myself and other people and everything but i think in in my mind you know i sometimes just ask them or say you know i haven't been talking to any women because (laughs) you're on your goddamn phone a lot today and um then some days i'm like whatever he does i have no control over his actions and whatever he does or does not do it's not a reflection on me you know it's the choices he makes hopefully we're in a place where we communicate well enough to know when we're having problems or not that way somebody doesn't go you know looking for something that we're not getting from somebody else because that's usually yeah, what it that's, is you know? that's a trick communicating like that Cause saying you can, it. yeah you can't steal somebody from somebody they go it's their choice everybody makes a choice you know when you cross the line I don't know. I I just trust them. We don't ignore it. Mm-hmm. You know, the fact that there are other people mm-hmm. vying for our attention and that, that, you know, when you're on the road, mm-hmm. it makes it easier to, to think you can get away with stuff like that. We discuss it. You yeah. know, if somebody's worried, we talk about it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, usually if you name something, it becomes a lot less uh, difficult to defeat. Right. And so when you get asked, Jason, have you been talking to women, do you feel defensive or do you feel like, oh, we need, we probably are due for a visit? Usually, no, I don't feel defensive because it's regular. It's a regular <laughs> thing. I mean, it's almost every day that we say that. Have you been talking to anybody that you got new boyfriends? You know? <laughs> And, yeah. uh, it's, you it's, got any new boyfriends? Yeah. Anybody interesting you? Yeah. And you could say, yeah, yeah, I've been talking to this person about whatever, but, you know, you shouldn't, shouldn't. You you should be able to have friends, you know, but that you yeah, that's another thing mm-hmm. too, because it's 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 you know it's hard for me to not be possessive, and I don't want to be possessive, you know. 
the family I come from, kind of old school about things, you know. I don't want it to be uneven. I don't want to be, you know, the man from Alabama who's in charge of his wife, you know, from Texas. I, I don't want it to be that way. I want it to be not possessive at all, you know. I, I think if you really trust somebody, they should be able to have whatever friends they want to have. But I think I think the trick is just, you know, talk about it. If something happens, if something's going to happen, it's going to happen, you yeah. know. You can choose to trust somebody or not. If you think you found somebody trustworthy, there's a better chance that you're not going to get stomped on. But at the end of the day, you have to understand that, yes, somewhere down the line, you might get your heart broken, you know. Mm-hmm. If you're a grown-up, it won't kill you. Um, Sometimes it helps me to say say it right out or say it in my brains or I'll feel so bad for you if you fuck this up. She does say that. I say that a lot. I feel so she bad for you if you fuck so this up. Bad I'll say you. it like three times to myself, yeah. you know, kind of like a helps a lot. Yeah, that says a lot about her right there because I believe it. I know it's a taunt, but I believe she would indeed. If she had to kick me out, she would feel bad for me. <laughs> she would feel pity, which she is probably a, not a good thing. It's to not what do, you want, you know. No. It's not what you want, but she would. She would she would really feel bad for me, not for having to kick me out, just for my general situation. <laughs> Put your faith to the test when I tore off your dress in Richmond all night. I sobered up I swore off that stuff forever this time. The old lovers say I thought it'd be me who helped him get home. Home was a dream, one I'd never seen till you came along. Do you have a a daily practice of being sober? Is there like a ritual for you? No, not really. I have certain things that I do when I want to drink. You know, usually the first thing I do is tell her I want to drink right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to have one, so I'm not telling you this so you'll be mm-hmm. on guard. I'm telling you this because I need to say it out loud. There and when you do that, it ends up being, we talk about why that is. And for me, I, I like to know what and when and why. And I'm just glad to be a part of it. I'm proud of you. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Have you talked about that, that not only the story of your sobriety, but your love story has become so much a part of your public personas? I mean, it's in your music, how much you love each other, (laughs) and the story of, you know, your redemption through that love. Is that scary for that to be so much part of what your public profile is? I mean, does it is it scary for you? Yeah, but it's supposed to be. Things that are that personal, you're supposed to write things that scare you. I mean, it's it's scary to me that that keeping a relationship together these days is as difficult as it is. There's so many avenues and so many ways out. But the last thing I'm going to worry about if she and I ever split up is being fucking embarrassed mm-hmm. at what the fans are going to think. Mm-hmm. Who cares, you know? Mm-hmm. If I have another drink and, uh, you know, and, and, and then I have a hundred more, the last thing I'm going to worry about is is oh, my God, what are they going to think? I told them all I was so... I don't care about that, you know? I'm going to have a lot of picking myself up to do if either of those things happen that's not going to involve other people's opinion. Yeah, I... um. Well, I like to be cheesy a little bit. I um, I just hope that uh, love could be a little bit more contagious, that more, you know... 
There you go. It's nice to be able to relate to people that, you know, experience um, similar problems. and. Yeah, I'm totally with that. I, you know, if it helps anybody, there might be some dude that thinks he's unlovable somewhere that's drunk and, you know, <laughs> laying in his own piss and thinking, yeah. boy, that pretty girl that lives next door will never have anything to do with me. And That's not always true, you know. Yeah, if it causes people to come to us or even to just think in the back of their mind, you know, that, that there's some kind of connection, then it's worth telling your secrets. Amen. And I've grown tired of traveling alone Tired of traveling alone I've grown tired of traveling alone Won't you ride with me? I've grown tired of traveling alone Tired of traveling alone I've grown tired of traveling alone That's Jason Isbell and Amanda Shires. They're touring all over the place this summer, and Amanda's opening for him for a three-night stand at Nashville's historic Rhineman Auditorium in October. Sex and Money is a production of WNYC. The team includes Emily Botine, James Ramsey, Chris Bannon, Bill O'Neill, and Jem Briggs. The Reverend John Delore and Steve Lewis wrote our theme music. Thanks also to Tracy Thomas, Spotland Productions in Nashville, and WNRN in Charlottesville. We want to know what stories about death, sex, and money you want to hear. Find us on Facebook. Our website is deathsexmoney.org. And I'm on Twitter, at Anna Sale. If you liked this episode, how about subscribing on iTunes or share with others what you like? Together, we'll get the whole world talking about death, sex, and money. In the next episode, the story of a woman who found herself divorced and desperate to have a child in her late 30s. A dear friend who's gay volunteered to help out. But then it was hard to get pregnant. So it took us, you know, three years from when we first said, okay, we're going to have a baby. Um, to actually having a baby. And we wound up getting married. So went from being sort of, yeah, we're friends, and I know you want this, Lucy, so okay, I'll help you out, to really both of us being a unit and a family. I'm Anna Sale, and this is Death, Sex, and Money from WNYC.